Welcome to Samford University's Campus Worship. We hope you enjoy the presentation. Hello, hello. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to welcome you to Campus Worship. Um, my name is Chris Harper. I work with the Office of Spiritual Life here. And uh, just as we get started, I'd like to encourage you just to kind of take out your phones and uh, make sure you silence it so we don't have anything going off. I'll do it with you right now. Just take a second to silence your phones. All right. I uh, really appreciate you all being here. I know that there's so many different things you could do. you got a lot of classes, um, but you chose to be here, and we really appreciate that. Just to kind of start off this morning, uh, I don't know if any of you braved going on Facebook and social media this week. If you did, it's likely you saw a lot of really interesting memes, maybe some large, large body posts, um, and the kind of posts that you're kind of wondering, okay, how long did it take for someone to actually write that? Um, and then maybe, you know, if you went on, whether it's Facebook or anything else, you also started to see a lot of confusion. And underneath that confusion, Maybe you started to see and sense that there's a lot of fear there. You know, it's election week, of course, and on one spectrum, we have so many people that are celebrating everything, and then on the other side of it, we have mourning and we have grieving, and then there's a lot of us in the middle that are simply here asking, okay, well, what are we supposed to do now? How do we relate to the world? Um, the election has kind of brought up a lot of questions about this um, for believers in Christ and for the church. And it's not really a new question. We're asking ourselves again and again, okay, how do we relate to the world now? How do we relate to culture? Because it's not just politics. How do we relate to culture? It's the same type of question we've been asking, you know, as we've been going through the Proverbs on Tuesdays. And I don't know if that connection's been made or not. But it's just good for us to think about. Now, as we've been going through the book of Proverbs and asking the question, okay, what does it mean to live wisely? Um, we bring that to, okay, what's going on in the world? This week it's politics. Sometimes it could be the refugee crisis. It could be all these different important events going on in the world. And we're asking ourselves, what are we supposed to do now? Dr. Westmoreland, who spoke last week, he talked about this tension of being in the world, but not of it. And in John 17, when Jesus is praying to his heavenly father, he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And if you're anything like me, this week, that wrestled with me. I had that verse in the back of my mind. Okay, I'm being sent into this world, but I'm not sure I know what to do with all these different circumstances. Um, so I... Uh, I would just like to encourage you with that and to kind of speak to this issue. Okay, we're Christ, faith, and culture. Um, we have our speaker this morning that is going to speak to that issue um, itself. Um, his name is Joel Busby, um, and for many years, he's actually been a pastor um, at Mountain Brook Community Church. Um, but before all that, he was a Sanford student just like you. Um, he did a lot of different ministry opportunities in Texas and Missouri, and then he came and got his Master's in Divinity at Beeson. And then he's also getting his doctorate now at Beeson. So this morning I asked him, okay, maybe the better question would be not how long you've been in school, but how much of your life have you not been in school? 
and he said maybe a f you know five years or something like that. It's a long time, um, and he's a really well-learned man who cares about students, who has a pastor's heart, and I think he's a great person to come alongside us and talk about culture with us today. Um, and just so you know, right now, right now he serves as a planning pastor at Redeemer Community Church, and he'll be looking to start a new congregation in the city this next year. Um, but just to kind of you know, settle us and prepare our hearts for being part of this conversation. I want to read part of Psalm 145, and Joel will come up and talk with us this morning. Um, so Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the, de the desire of those who fear him, and he also hears their cry and saves them. Lord, we ask that you would meet us where we are this morning, um, that you would speak boldly and clearly uh, through Joel. Um, may we hear you gladly. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. So my name is Joel Busby. As Chris said, it's an honor to be here with you. Thanks, Brian and Chris, for the invitation. Um, so here, this is what happened to me. I was a Sanford student, just like you. I sat literally where you sit. And I had to do 64 what we call convocations before we graduated. So I, I sat here 64 times, heard a guy talk, and I never really dreamed that I could come back and be a speaker. <clears throat> but when I woke up this morning, I was excited to come back and be a speaker at Sanford's Campus Worship. And I was all excited about that, like a full circle moment. I'm an adult, all these things. But when I walk in, I pass somebody and I strike up a conversation. They said to me, are you a new freshman here? I'm like, I'm 34 years old, okay? I have a wife. I have two children. I have a mortgage. I have a job. Anyway, hey, it's really, really good to be with you. Um, we're talking about Christianity and culture this morning. And to start, I want to give you a philosophy joke. I don't know how you feel about philosophy jokes, but here's the way it goes. Um, there were two fish, two young fish, kid fish, if you will, two young fish. The two fish are swimming um, down the current, if you will. Um, they're swimming, and as they go, it's early in the morning, they pass by an older fish, a wise fish, an old man fish. The two fish swim by, the old fish comes by, and the old fish says to the kid fish, good morning, boys. How's the water? The kid fish say good morning, and they keep swimming. And as they pass on down the way, they look at each other and they said, what's water? That was the joke. Um, the idea is that there are some things that are so obvious to us that we are immersed in that are actually some of the hardest things to actually think about and talk about. And culture is one of those things. It's hard to talk about culture. It's hard to think about culture because culture is literally the air you breathe. Um, it's the stuff that you assume. Um, for example, all of you guys in here, we are part of the human culture. Okay, But more so than that, most of us at least are Westerners. We're part of Western culture. There's all sorts of assumptions that you bring to the table, the fact that you are a Westerner. Even more than that, you are American. At least most of you. You're American. So there's all kinds of assumptions. There's all kinds of ways that you assume that the world works. 
that are up and running in your mind all the time by nature of the fact that you are an American. Um, at least a good chunk of you are Southerners. There's all sorts of things about the way the world works that you assume without even thinking about it by the sheer fact that you're a Southerner. Your college students, your university students, there's a whole nother set of assumptions that come with being in university college student culture. Even crazier, your Sanford students. There's all sorts of things about Sanford culture. For example, when you go in the library and you want good luck on a test, what do you do? Touch the nose of the statue, right? Because that's a Sanford cultural thing. Um, you take pictures when you graduate next to a statue of a man named Mr. Beeson. It's a Sanford culture thing. The entirety of your life revolves around an event that happens in the spring called Stepsing. Okay? It's a Sanford culture thing. So culture is a hard thing to think about. Um, but we're going to kind of talk about it here this morning. Um, there's lots and lots of talk, especially among Christians, about the fact that we live in what some people call a secular culture. Um, that's actually the title of what we're going to cover here today is Christian Witness in a Secular Culture. Um, but what does it mean that we live in a secular culture? You see a lot of Christians who are either angry that we live in a secular culture, a feeling that they're mad because their world has been taken from them. So a posture of anger. There's also a lot of Christians that worry or fretful about the idea that they live in a secular culture. They presume it means something scary for the cause of Christ that we live in a secular culture. But what does being in a secular culture mean? I want to really begin this morning by defining what does it mean to be in a secular culture. There's a movie that came out in 1987. It's, it's a movie that some people would say explains all the keys to the universe. The classic movie, The Princess Bride, came out in 1987. You guys know this movie? There's a place in that movie where there's a character named Vincini. Throughout the movie, he continues to use this word. He keeps saying, inconceivable. Things will happen, and he'll say, inconceivable. And he says it over and over and over again. And there comes a point in which something crazy happens. Vincini looks down, in, uh, down at the bottom of a cliff because something has just happened, and he says, inconceivable. And then finally, Inigo Montoya looks at him and says, you keep using this word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. As Christians, we're using this word secular, but I don't think it means what we think it means. Um, to define the word secular, I want to draw on a guy named Jamie Smith, or James K.A. Smith. Here's the way he defines what it means to be in a secular society or secular culture. A society is secular insofar as religious belief or belief in God is understood to be one option among others and thus contestable or contested. What Smith's getting at is the idea of secular. A lot of times when Christians use the word secular, what we think it means is that we live in a culture that's inherently hostile to Christianity. We use the word secular almost as an interchangeable term with atheistic or something like that. But what Smith says what secular means is not so much that the culture is inherently anti-Christian, but instead that we live in a world where all beliefs, any kind of belief in God or anything else for that matter, is contested. It's up for grabs. We live in a world full of, in other words, um, widespread doubt about the idea of truth. Um, so when we use the word secular, just for this talk, I'm really talking about it more in this kind of term. The idea that we live in this space where 
where we're pressured on all sides. Um, people who believe in God are haunted by the idea that maybe he doesn't actually exist. Or people who don't believe in God at all have this nagging suspicion at the end of the day, you know what, what if he's actually real? It's what a philosopher named Charles Taylor called this cross-pressured place of on one side doubting your beliefs, on the other side for people who claim to have no religious beliefs, being fearful that maybe they're wrong. It's somewhere along the way. Um, we live in a world where, um, you know, a lot of thinkers say that there was a day in which the, the common assumption of someone who was atheistic, for example, was I don't believe in God and I hate him. What people say now is we live in a world where it's I don't believe in God, but I miss him. It's a novelist, Julian Barnes, just a great window into the postmodern secular mindset. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This cross-pressured space, doubting your belief in him or doubting your unbelief in him. That's really what it means to be in a secular culture. I want to talk about three features of a secular age. So if that's a definition, living in this place of incredible doubt, um, here's three features of the secular culture. Now, there's probably hundreds of them, but I'm going to pick out three that I think are especially pertinent um, for, for who we're called to be as God's people, um, especially pertinent for how we're supposed to understand the world most immediately. Um, here's three things, and here's the way I, the way I want to do this. Um, I, I, want to, I want to tell you a feature of the secular culture, and then I want to give you a quote, um, which is a, a window, a quote from something in pop culture, which is a window into this mindset, into this feature. Okay? And I want to say at the beginning here, as I walk my way through these features of a secular culture, I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not that all of these things are inherently automatically bad. Okay? Some of what I'm going to say is not necessarily bad. Um, but they're just three features of a secular culture. Um, here's the first one, feature number one. If it will go. Feature number one. Oh. You think you can just hit them for me? Okay, great. Um, feature number one, expressive individualism. Okay, this is a phrase from a philosopher named Charles Taylor. Expressive individualism. Um, finish this phrase for me. You might have just saw it right there. You do, you do you. Um, Expressive individualism. You and I are taught from our earliest days that the meaning of life, okay, the meaning of life, the way to achieve the good life is to find that person that's deep down inside of you, to find that desire that's deep down inside of you, to find that thing that you believe that you are, and to somehow find your way to express that before the world. I mean, this is the whole, this is the whole logic behind something like a Facebook status. It's about expressing who you are as an individual. Um, I have a four-year-old son named Henry, and my little boy Henry, when he began preschool, when he was three, um, his teachers asked him to, to do a little personal bio where he had his picture, his name, you know, his mom and dad, his brother, that sort of thing. And there was one question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, Henry put on it that he wanted to be a fireman, okay? But I was reflecting on that. What an amazing idea. And it's a brand new idea actually in the history of ideas that a person could actually think 
inside of me, what do I want to do? And how will I go about expressing that thing? In the history of, of, of humankind, it's, it's, it's a brand new idea that we would have some kind of control over our identity in that kind of way. Thousands of years ago, that question just would have never been asked. Because you would, there's, there, there was no choice in what you were going to be one day. If your family were farmers, you were going to be a farmer. If your family was, was a family of, of blacksmiths, you were going to be a blacksmith. You had no choice in it. You had no agency in it. But you and I live in a world where we're told that expressing ourselves as an individual is the highest good of the human person. This is what a philosopher calls that we live in the idea of, or we live in an age of authenticity. And what he means by that is not a good thing, that we want to be in authentic relationships with one another. That's not what he means. What he means is we live in a world that believes at the end of the day that the whole goal of our lives are to find our way to be our most authentic selves deep down inside of us and to release that self, express that self fully. That the way to live the good life in our culture is to kind of unshackle ourselves from any kind of thing that holds us back from being the fullest possible us. And you do that in almost every area of your life without thinking about it. You do that in the area of your career choices. Okay, and again, that's not a bad thing necessarily. You do that in the area of your sexuality, where you're told you should somehow. Expressive individualism. Here's a second feature of a, of a secular culture. Second feature. And it follows from the first. We live in a culture of overwhelming anxiety. Overwhelming anxiety. A third of all Americans suffer from a, or will suffer in their lifetime, a third, from some kind of overwhelming um, anxiety disorder. Um, I mean, think about the question you most dread. The question you most dread. What are you going to do after you graduate? <laughs> right? Um, here's a quote from a, an author named Ruth Whitman. Um, Ruth Whitman has just written a book called America the Anxious. And the subtitle is How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Making Us a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. And she basically talks about the initial sense of promise that we can express ourselves and find this happiness, express our individual, individuality. The initial sense of promise and hope is seductive, but it soon gives way to a nagging, slow burn feeling of inadequacy. Am I happy? Am I happy enough? As happy as everyone else? Could I be doing more about it? What about Megan? She looks happier. What is she doing I'm not doing? Maybe I should take up yoga. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel it like you might be missing out on something that everybody else is getting to do and feel and experience? See, if you live in a world that tells you that the highest good of, of you as a human being is to find yourself and be yourself and express yourself, that's unbelievably exhausting. Because what if you're not going to do it right? I remember as an undergrad, it was time for me to pick my major. And I live in a culture that tells me that finding out my special thing and my special calling in order to do it fully and express it is the highest good of who I'm supposed to be. And I remember I had no idea what to pick. And I remember for the first time in my life being a 19-year-old, feeling like an elephant was sitting on my chest because of the weight of stress and anxiety about me trying to find my way to be the me I'm supposed to be. We live in a culture of amazing levels of anxiety which leads really to a third feature a third feature is a deep 
cynicism, a deep cynicism. Um, here's a quote from one of my favorite authors in one of my favorite books. Cormac McCarthy, it's a book he wrote called The Road. It won the Pulitzer Prize. I do recommend it, but it's a very, very difficult book to read. It's a post-apocalyptic novel. And here's what he said. There is no God, and we are his prophets. In other words, whereas in maybe a conventional understanding, the idea of a prophet is to point people to God, in a secular world, a postmodern world, the goal of a prophet is to point you away from the hope that there is a God. In other words, this idea of, of expressive individuals that leads to this overwhelming anxiety actually gives its way in our culture to a deep, deep, deep sense of cynicism. Lots of thinkers, lots of philosophers, theologians have talked about in our world the collapse of what they would call a meta-narrative, an overarching story. For thousands and thousands of years, human beings assumed that the world was made by someone. You had maybe different opinions as to who that someone was or that thing was, but the world was made by someone or something, and that that someone or something was moving the world in a particular direction according to that someone or something's purposes. And that the goal of human life was to somehow figure out who that someone and something was and to live your life in response to that someone or something. That was the common way human beings understood the world. The way that human beings understand the world in a secular culture, a postmodern culture, is that actually that whole story about there being a God of some kind with purposes, almost no one is inclined to believe that anymore. Scholars call it the collapse of a meta-narrative. And even more so, you've got a philosopher like a Frederick Nietzsche who says that any claims whatsoever that there is an overarching meta-narrative story is actually just a way someone's trying to hold power over you. To try to get coerce you to do the things that he or she wants you to do. So yet another reason not to trust the meta-narrative. The ancient world's central fear was death. So the central question of the ancient world was how can I be safe? People say that the central question of the modern world was how can I know? How can I know the truth? A lot of people have made the comment that the central question of the postmodern world or the secular world is who knows, who cares? A deep and abiding cynicism and despair. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, the overwhelming anxiety I talked about in a second, you understand how quickly overwhelming anxiety, even a low-grade anxiety over lots and lots of times, can lead to despair, to depression, to cynicism. Those are three key features of the secular world. There's more. Um, here, here's what I want to what I want to transition to: um, three Christian practices for a secular age. Three Christian practices for a secular age. You and I are Christians, so we are supposed to live in light of this secular culture in which we live. We're supposed to live in response to it. Now, the three things I'm going to share are not three things to fix our culture. Okay. They're not three key strategies to make people believe the things that we believe. But there's three ways that we can live in response to these features of a secular age. Um, here's the first one. Practice number one. 
No. No. No what? I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian here this morning, know your faith. And I mean really know it. You're the golden opportunity in your life to begin to own your faith, to own the things that you've always been taught. Know your faith. Know how your faith really explains the world. Yo, I've been a pastor for, for, for 10 or so years. I've sat down with lots and lots. I was in college ministry for a while. I sat down with lots and lots and lots of college students, with lots of adults. And, and it's, it's unbelievable how many times I hear someone across the table from me start explaining the Christian faith or explaining the Christian life. And I sit there and say to them, wait a second. You know, that's not actually what Christianity teaches, don't you? And then they look at me like, what? Most people that I interact with think Christianity's ultimately about a body of information to agree with. Now, Christianity has information and has doctrinal truths, but Christianity is not essentially about information to agree with. A lot of people that I sit down with think that Christianity's ultimately about some ethic to live, like a, a, a moral compass in which to sort of perform. Now, Christianity comes with an ethic. It comes with a lived dimension that's inextricable from it. But, but, but living a certain moral standard is not ultimately what Christianity is about. A lot of people that I sit down with think that Christianity, and this is the one that's most confusing and and, and, and most difficult, I think, especially for a college student, a lot of people think Christianity is ultimately about some experience or emotion or feeling. Have you ever been there? Haven't you been there where you think to yourself, am I feeling the thing I'm supposed to be feeling if I'm feeling close to God? But Christianity, though it comes with emotions, though it comes with experience and, and feeling, it's not ultimately about a feeling. See, Christianity is ultimately about a relationship with a person named Jesus who's done some things for you. That's actually what Christianity is ultimately about. And Christianity has ways of explaining the world. Um, know those things. Come to know God. Here's a second practice, a second Christian practice for a secular culture. The first one's know. The second one is show Show. You and I have an opportunity to show a different way of understanding the world. For example, let's take this expressive individualism. This idea that the highest good of the human person is to find yourself, to be yourself, to express yourself. To unshackle yourself from any kind of restraint so that you can be the fullest possible you. Here's what's interesting Christianity shows us a different way. Christianity will actually tell us that to die to yourself, to actually give yourself away, is where you'll find the best possible version of yourself. Take this idea of this overwhelming anxiety we see in our culture. 
See, Christianity will tell us that we can actually not be, we can, we can come to a place where we're not really anxious about anything because we've learned to treasure Christ above all things. We can live a different pace personally. The frenetic busyness that causes so much overwhelming anxiety, we can be people who show a way of being human that understands our limitations, that takes deep breaths, that takes time to rest and disconnect so that we can be present fully with God and with, for others. We can show a different way of being human in our worship services. We can show a different way versus the deep cynicism that we see. In our worship services, we can show a way of understanding the world. Um, we can rehearse in our worship services that meta-narrative that Christianity teaches us, that God's holy, that we're sinners, that Jesus saves us, that Jesus sends us. We have a different way of understanding the way that the world works. We have an opportunity um, to show a different way of being a human being. Um, here's a third practice for um, a secular age. The first one's no, the second one's show, the third one is to care. And when I use the word care here, I mean to actually have your head on a swivel looking for people whom, for whom you can care or to whom you can care. Expressive individualism. The idea that the meaning of life is to unshackle yourself from any bonds. That way of understanding the world actually causes a lot of pain. I will never forget, as long as I live, sitting down with a 25-year-old young man who bought the lie of expressive individualism, especially with regard to his sexuality. Um, he basically wanted to have sex with tons and tons of girls, and that's just what he wanted to do. And he was using apps and Tinder and things like that to hook up with multiple girls every day. Um, <clears throat> he was doing it. He was expressing himself fully. His, our culture says that is the key to living the good life. And I will never forget as long as I live, seeing him sitting down in my office, bawling his eyes out because he had destroyed his life. Care. Care. In other words, there are going to be a wake of broken, hurting people who've bought some of these lies. You're going to interact with people on your campuses who are overwhelmed with anxiety. And you have a chance to care for them. I don't know if you've ever discovered the power of when one of your friends is talking about so much stress and anxiety that they feel. And you say to them, hey, so what are you, what are you, what are you stressed about? Tell me. And then they say, because a big part of anxiety is these irrational fears, right? It's these irrational fears. And then they say the thing they're anxious about, and you can look them in the eyes and say, hey, bro, that's not that big a deal. There's, some, there's something about allowing someone to share the things that they're stressing about that brings those things into the light that can actually disarm them. Or that you can pray for that person. There's all sorts of ways you can care for the anxious souls that you see all around you. What about this deep cynicism? This deep despair? You have an opportunity to look across the table from the cynical, despairing, depressed person. And tell them about a resource in the scriptures, for example, like the Psalms of Lament. Psalms that express deep despair and they express, express it to God. And you can tell that person that there's these resources for you in our Christian tradition for your despairing and cynical moment. 
See, to live in a secular culture, though it may be ridiculous, to live this, this um, to live in light of some of these absurd things that we sometimes see, um, to live in a secular culture where maybe at times we feel like as Christian people we're put aside and cast to the margins. See, but to live in a secular culture means unbelievable opportunity for the Christian person. To know their faith fully, to, to show a different way, and to care for those who've been hurt by it. So that's really my encouragement to you and for you this morning. Um, to live a different way, to show a different way, to know a different way, to be a different way. It's nothing to fear. It's nothing to be angry about. Um, it's a chance for in our time and our moment to be God's people. Just once again. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would go before us as we try to be your people. Lord, I pray that we would be people who give ourselves away as opposed to being narcissistic and self-absorbed. That's hard, Lord. We live in a world that prizes those things. Would you teach us to be people who find meaning and purpose in giving ourselves away? Lord, in a culture of overwhelming anxiety on all sides, would we be people of peace and serenity? Would we be like a medicine to those around us? Lord, in the light of deep despair and deep cynicism, God, would we be people who remember that we serve a king who used to be dead, who was raised? Lord, and would a hope that we have in Christ, would it be so powerful and so palpable to the world around us that it engenders real, true, and living hope? Lord, make us your people um, for this time, for this moment. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you. You guys are dismissed. For more information about Samford University, check out samford.edu.